We hope you enjoy this message from St. Martin C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. As we've been looking at over the last few weeks, God has not led us to or called us to an ordinary life, right? Okay, I hope you agree with that. He's called us to an extraordinary life. He's called us into a relationship with him where we can know him personally. We can actually hear God speaking to us, guiding us and directing us in our lives. We can be filled with passion for him and his message and how that's going to change the world around us. We can move in the power that he's given us and see things, really cool things happen. And thank you for the testimonies that you've fed back to us over the last couple of weeks of people that have been healed and um, dramatically impacted by the prayer that we prayed over each other a couple of weeks ago. God is doing good things, amen? And let's keep believing in the one who is leading us into the life beyond the ordinary. And as Chris looked at last week, he also leads us to a deeper connection with each other. That's not possible just through what we do naturally, but through the power of the Holy Spirit that is in us. All made possible because the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Amen? So what we need, and and the message of this whole series, and I hope you've picked it up, is that we can't do any of this. We can't live an extraordinary life, the life that God's called us to live, in our strength. It's just impossible, okay? So if you're trying to do that, give up, okay? Give it away. Don't, don't, stop trying. You, you won't succeed. Surrender to God. Open your life to his Holy Spirit. Let his Spirit empower you. And be in touch, be aware in your own life of that Spirit working through you, and then you'll live the extraordinary life that God's called you to live. And we're looking, and in this series we've been looking at the book of Acts and how the early church, these early Christians lived out this extraordinary life and how they were empowered by the Spirit to do that. And the area that we're going to look at today is our character. Yeah, this is where the, the rubber hits the road. Yes, it's, it's fun to do the glory stuff, so to speak, isn't it? To, to pray for someone for healing and to see their healing. You go, oh man, this is awesome. But we need our character to be in step with our calling. Because we've all seen people that have got that out of balance and it's gone pear-shaped. And others that we admire because they're able to keep that in balance. See, God is holy. And he calls and he empowers his people to be holy. And in in the early part of Acts, we see examples of both the positive and the negative of that. So we're going to dive into Acts chapter 4. And this first example is a very positive example. Acts chapter 4, verse 33, very much continuing on from what Chris shared last week around the, the commitment of community and how they loved each other and how they were dedicated to each other. Uh, Acts 4.33, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to, to anyone who had need. In other words, there was such commitment to community, such 
character in this community that they went, hey, if these people are in need, we'll do whatever it takes to meet that need. I even had an example of this in a, over the last couple of weeks in this church where I saw a dramatic example of that, of someone in need and another person in our church meeting that need. And I think, man, isn't it so good to be in the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit working on people's hearts to do that? Uh, an example is uh, Acts 4.36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, and the apostle called Barnabas sold a field he owned and he bought the money and he put it at the disciples' feet. So that's a positive example. Okay. Now, that's cool. Now, we get to Acts chapter 5. Tricky passage of scripture, but let's dive into it today. Now, but just imagine, before we sort of dive into the story, and probably many of you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira quite well, but imagine if that happened in church today. Would the reaction be similar? Have a, have a think about that. Acts 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Didn't have cell phones and social media those days. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men, carried, uh, the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her body beside her husband. In verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. No surprises there. Wouldn't you? <laughs> now, let's just work this through. Luke, who's writing down these accounts, who's taking a record of what's happened in the, uh, the early church at this time, why did he include this story? Sometimes I have asked that question. <laughs> Why? <laughs> this is such a difficult passage. Why isn't it there? Well, for first, firstly, it really happened. You know, like, actually, it's a difficult passage, and there is a reason that it's there. There's a lot that we can learn from, but it's not a made-up story. This actually happened. So it's recorded because it's a historical fact. This is what happened in the church. Now it's up to us to go, well, what can we learn from this? What, what is here that's helpful for us? And I don't know about you, but I find this passage really, really challenging. Have I got any friends out there like, yeah, that you've struggled with? Okay, cool, right. Hang on, I hope there's a few more out there. But what, and why do we struggle with this? And I was drilling down on this this week going, 
God, what is it about this passage that I go, oh, did that really happen? And, and why? Why did it happen? And when I really boiled it down, I realized that what I'm struggling with is, is God who I think he is? Because I kind of thought, as we've been singing this morning, God is gracious, God is good, God is kind, right? He gives second chances. And, and I kind of think, okay, you know, they lied about the piece of land, yeah, but surely they could have came in and said, look, guys, uh, Peter could have just given a word of knowledge, just gone, you're lying. And he goes, oh, look, yes, so sorry, you know, let's put this right. No one needed to die, you know, like it all could have been put right. Like, what's going on here? Like, you know, you think of other examples in the Bible, like King David. Who he, he like killed someone and then he, he committed adultery and then he took the guy's wife like, hello, like God didn't kill him. He even kept him in his king. Like what's going on here? How can, you, how can God be so gracious in one example and so brutal here the next? You ever, you know, have I got any, is it only me that asks these questions? Yeah, 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 okay, right. So there's a few of these out there. And so, first of all, whenever we look at a specific passage of Scripture like this, we have to look at the overall context in the Bible. And what is the overall context? The overall context is this. God is holy. God does not tolerate sin of any kind. He, he doesn't just overlook evil and go, ah, doesn't matter. He, sin actually matters. And we will all be judged. Hebrews 9 outlines that we all stand before judgment one day. So has God got the right to judge Ananias and Sapphira on the spot and kill them for the sin that they committed? Yes, he does. God could do that. Could God judge you for the sin that you are committing right now or have done? Yes, he could. Fortunately, in most examples, God doesn't do that. He defers judgment. That's in his grace. He defers judgment, and we will be judged later on. And that's why we have the cross, so that, that, that guilt is taken away from us. Our sin is forgiven, and we'll look at that a little bit later on. So, so God could judge, and he has the right to judge, and in this example, he does. But that doesn't solve the problem. Because the problem still remains, why didn't, okay, God can, and he did, but why didn't he, in this example, extend grace? Why did God just give judgment to Ananias and Sapphira and not extend grace to them? Well, here's my observation on this passage, and I've read several commentaries around this, and they all have a different sort of idea around this. So here's my thoughts on the passage as to why God executed such harsh judgment in this instance. If you look down through history, you'll see that God can be especially present among his people at certain times. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read how there was a holy of holies. There was a place um, in the tent of meeting and then in the temple where it was considered especially holy because God was present there. They literally used to tie a rope around the priest who would enter into the Holy of Holies because if he was struck down dead, they could pull him out and they wouldn't have to get in there and, 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 and be killed. So there was this respect and awe that God, when God is especially present among his people, that environment needs to be respected. 
Uh, and, and, you know, there was Eli's son who's, who, who dishonoured uh, the temple and God judged them. There was Usa who reached out and touched the ark. Remember the ark was being carried and he reached out and touched it and when everyone knew you don't touch the ark of the covenant and he was struck down deep. There was even a more recent example was Zechariah. Remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He goes into the Holy of Holies. God meets him in that place. This is a holy moment as created, a, a very holy environment. And in that environment, he questions God. He questions the angel and says, ah, I don't think that's going to happen. Now, for God's purposes, he needed Zechariah to stay alive, so, but he still judged him, and he was mute for a few months. So there is something about the principle that we see there is that there is a high expectation of holiness in God's presence. Okay, that's a, it's a principle that we can see in Scripture. And what I suspect is going on here is that in the environment that we see created in the early church with the Holy Spirit being poured out, with miracles happening, with people coming together with deep commitment to each other, there was a sense in the church of God being very especially present at that time. Ananias and Sapphira knew that. They were well aware of it and they violated it. They brought something that was not of God into his very presence. Difficult for us to comprehend, maybe, but for me, some way to explain this passage. Uh, a number of years ago, a, a friend of mine was recalling how in the late 80s, around mid to late 80s, um, Korea, uh, South Korea, uh, it still is known for this today, but there was somewhat of a revival in South Korea. And actually, even now, there's a huge percentage of the South Korean population goes to church. And one of the sort of well-known churches where that revival was breaking out was Yongi Cho's church, which is actually still, I think, one of the largest churches in the world. Like, I don't know how many people, I think about a million people in this church. Um, and they, that church started to hold these prayer meetings and people from all over the world went along to these prayer meetings too because they, they were just so powerful. It was just so... that The presence of God was so powerfully there. And a, a friend of mine um, from Dunedin went up to attend one of these meetings and uh, they, um, they stayed in a hotel across the road. They could literally see out their window and, and look at the church down the road and see what was going on. And anyway, they were up in the middle of the night. Like It was like 12 o'clock at night, 1 o'clock in the morning, but because of jet lag and time zones and all that, so they, they were still awake. And they saw people going into the church because they used to have all-night prayer meetings and things like that. And, and he just felt, right, I'm not going to wait till tomorrow. I'm going now, you know. So, so he, he leaves his hotel room in the middle of the night and goes into the church. And even as he's coming into the door of this church, he senses, wow, the... the it, again, this is an intangible thing and hard to describe, but the presence of God was just so powerfully there. And he saw a whole lot of people kneeling and even lying down and praying before God, and there was a number of people up on the stage, and he could see that they were really encountering God in a deep way. And he went, right, that's, that's what I want. That, that's, that's, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm for that. And so he started running down the aisle towards the big church, and he's running down the aisle towards the stage. And all of a sudden he says, it's like I hit a wall. Not a physical wall, but it was, it was just kind of, just his whole being became fully aware of who he was in the presence of God and how unworthy he was 
to even be in that place. And he didn't even make it to the stage. But he had a pretty powerful encounter with God that night. See, there are times when God is especially present among his people. And we need to respect that. We need to respect the presence of God. And from what I can see of this passage, it's my only, I suppose, um, logical and biblical interpretation I can make sense of why God judged Ananias and Sapphira so harshly. So that's kind of the theological part of that passage to, for you to wrap your head around. And if you've got another theory on that, actually email me or phone me during the week and let me know because yeah, I've spent some time in this passage trying to make sense of it. But the most important thing for us is to go, what can we learn from this passage? What can we learn from this example of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, here's the first mistake they made. Let's learn from their negative example. The first mistake Ananias and Sapphira made is they thought, oh, God will just overlook this. God, th th this will be all right. Like, hey, the church has got, other people have given the church money. We need the money as well. I know that's what we committed to, but, you know, we'll just tell a little lie. It'll be, it'll be fine. You know, God will overlook this. Let's be really clear. Let's learn from their example God doesn't overlook sin. You know those little things that maybe you should be watching or engaging in or whatever that you know you shouldn't be and you, you've convinced yourself, oh, you know, God will just overlook this. No, no, he doesn't. You may, he may not strike you dead on the spot, okay, but it still offends him. It still affects your relationship with God. Don't assume that God overlooks sin. Here's the second mistake they make, and it's a, a mistake we all make as well. They sought to justify. They, they conspired together. They kind of worked it through together and go, hey, we, we're going to do this and it's okay, isn't it? You're okay with this? We're okay with this? Okay, we're in agreement, all good. And we do this to ourselves. You know, we go, oh, I, you know, I know it's a bit wrong, but no one else is going to know about it. It'll be okay. It's not hurting anyone. Uh, I, I deserve this. I've done so much for God and I've sacrificed so much. Uh, you know, just, just a little bit of sinful indulgence. Surely that's okay. What are you doing? You're justifying it. You're, just, you're simply, you know, your conscience and, your, and the Holy Spirit in you is saying one thing and you're trying to justify your actions and your thinking at that moment. Don't, don't justify. As soon as you catch yourself doing that, go, oh, man, what am I doing? Head the other way. Thirdly, if you get past this step of thinking, oh, I've got to overlook it, and then you've justified it and probably seared your conscience in the process, which is also a dangerous thing, the third step you'll do is you'll start lying. You'll start lying to other people around you, when you're challenged, they'll say, hey, you're doing that, and you go, ah, no, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah you are. <laughs> you are. Be honest with yourself. You start lying to yourself, you start lying to people around you. With, you know, the extreme example of this is people that are addicted to something, right? You know, and you challenge them on it, and they go, 
No, 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 I'm not like that. And, and you know, when people go along to Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that, one of the first things they say, and we, we kind of joke about it, but it's so powerful, is to say, I am an alcoholic, right? They've got to admit. They've got to admit to the lie that they've been living. But we all who sin, and I'll put myself in that same category, we all sin, right? Well, stop lying about it. Stop trying to tell yourself that you are so holy and so good and you've got it all together. No, 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 be honest. Stop lying. Stop lying to yourself. And, and stop trying to justify and live a lie. Because when you do that, you're in the enemy's territory. Satan is the father of lies. I was gutted a, a couple of weeks ago. John T. Um, shared with me how an author that we both admire and have respected over many years, an American um, preacher, author, uh, apologist, um, it's come out that he lived a, very much a, a double life. You know, there was the life that he lived in, in public and he looked so holy, but in private, um, yeah, he was sinning. And for him to do that, he, he covered that up over many years. And, and there are countless examples, unfortunately, that we can see of that. And you kind of go, how can people be so holy, so on fire for God, called by God, and yet do this? Because they live a lie. And they keep believing that lie. So that's the bad news. And you're trying to think, okay, oh man, is there any hope in this message? Well, here it goes. Here's a, here's a good sight. But let me, before I give you the steps of what repentance and what redemption and what our way out of sin looks like, can I emphasize, just put a wee note in here and say two things. Number one, stop hiding from God. Hiding things from God is never going to work. Second thing is stop trying harder in your own strength. If you've been around and around this mountain where you go, I know there is a sin in my life, but I've actually given up repenting. I've, I've given up trying because I've tried and it hasn't worked. I'm still stuck in this sin. It's because you're doing it in your own strength. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. So what does that look like? Well, the first, the, the first thing, and we would have hoped that Ananias and Sapphira did this, is draw close to God. Because when you draw close to God, your sin is exposed. When they came into church, their sin was exposed. When Isaiah had a vision of heaven, he went, oh man, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. When we draw into the presence of God, it becomes very clear how holy or how unholy we are. So if you've got any doubt as to where you are at with God, just come into his presence. Come into prayer. Come into worship. Spend some time with him. And as you spend time in his presence, your heart will be revealed. And when your heart is revealed, remember this. Hebrews 4, verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Jesus knows the struggle that you're going through. And actually, you're not alone in the struggle. We've all struggled with sin. And yet, he is the one we can approach. Verse 16, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. If you're sinning, I know there'll be a voice inside you going, Oh, 
don't go to church, don't have a quiet time, don't, don't go anywhere near God, go your own way because God will find out. Well, you know, newsflash, he already knows. So just come, just come, don't, don't pull away, push it close. Secondly, humble yourself. James 4 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're looking for grace, humble yourself. Imagine if Sapphira came in and went, oh man, yeah, no, you, you caught me out. Uh, that wasn't the price. Let, let me just put it straight. You know, God would have shown her grace and mercy in that humility. Humility with repentance before the cross fully cleanses us. When we come humbly to the cross of Christ and we repent, we we confess our sin and we turn from our sin and say, God, I don't want to live that sinful life, but by your cross, I want to be clean. And by your Holy Spirit, I want to be empowered to live the life that you've called me to live. You will overcome sin. The power of sin in your life will be broken. Amen? Amen. And that's the good news. The good news is we don't get stuck in sin. We don't have to stay in bondage. The good news is that the power of the Holy Spirit is present here to free us from that sin and to live a, to, and help us to live a life of righteousness. And that's the third step, is to live in his grace and empowerment. Don't just come to Christ and say, God, forgive me of the sin. Ask him, how do I live? In a meaningful, heartfelt way, go, God, how do I live free of this sin? And God will show you. God will throw you, show you through his scriptures. He'll throw, show you through his promptings of his Holy Spirit in you. So you'll want to change and you'll know how to change. You won't be stuck. You'll discover that the Holy Spirit is working in you, overcoming sin. The Holy Spirit is working in you, creating a holy character that is in line with God, what God has called you to. Because I know for many of us, we look at, the extraordinary life that God has called us to or his purposes for our lives and we go, I really want that but I know I, I just can't do it because of who I am. I know the secret thoughts of my heart. I know who I am when no one's looking and it's a little bit scary. God wants to draw close to you today. He wants to, you to come to him he wants to pour out his spirit in you and to free you of sin and help you to live the life that he's called you to live. Help you grow holy character that matches your calling. Uh, one of the privileges that I have as a pastor is I get to officiate weddings. And weddings are pretty cool. They're pretty fun. And, um, and of course I meet the couples uh, before they get married and I'm often having those Slightly deeper conversations around, you know, for the guy, you know, are you nervous? And, and talk to the bride, are you excited? And I get to kind of go between both parties and things like that. And, and we, all weddings are pretty much like this. There is this excitement because, as, as Chris used this word last week, which is such a good word, it's beautiful. There's a life that they're looking forward to. There's this... There's this Wedding day, that is this very special day in a, in, a, in a couple's life where they're declaring their love and their vows 
to each other and they're looking forward to the beauty of all of that and all, of that, all that's going to follow from that. But they're also really nervous. They're going, oh man, oh. they're nervous about, you know, will the day go as, as planned and all the way it's meant to go? Will they remember their vows that they're meant to say and, you know, stand where they're meant to stand and all that sort of thing? And also a little bit nervous that they're entering into this relationship and this intimacy that they haven't been there before. And, you know, will, will I do this right? Is, is it going to be okay? And notice there that in that, in this, there's this, at the same time, there's a little bit of fear and, and respect, you know, awe, if you like. And there's also excitement and beauty that draws them in. And the presence of God is like that. It has both those dimensions to it. There is that dimension of God where we go, oh, there is a freedom, there is a joy, there is a power, there is a comfort, there is lots of beautiful things that I know that are in God's presence, that are in a relationship with God, that draws me to him. There's a beauty that I want, I desire. But he's also a bit scary. He's... He's, he's a God to be feared. And you're holding both those things, and actually, it's okay to hold both those things. It, God's not one or the other. He's actually both. And that's okay. And it's okay to fear God and respect Him and have awe. But remember that there's also a freedom, as we were singing before. There's a freedom in surrender. There is a beauty that we come into when we when we choose to lay down our sin and come into all that God has. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.